Hello and welcome to On the Battlefield with Father Michael Marcantoni and me, Father Joseph Collins, where we are sharing the Christian message of hope and endurance amidst the struggles and suffering of life. Father Michael, great to be back with you again today. Why don't you remind everyone where they can find us online and on social media? Absolutely. So, of course, you can find us over at our main hosting site that is Anchor FM that shares out over iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Uh, and several other platforms, and on social media, Facebook, the On the Battlefield podcast. Uh, and that is where we also put up a lot of other related content. So if you enjoy what you're listening to here, you can also see, uh, pick up other related videos and topics and things on our Facebook page. And do keep your eyes open because uh, very shortly, uh, this is a bi-weekly podcast, so it's every two weeks. On the off weeks, very soon we're going to begin offering uh, on the battlefield shorts over uh, as a sort of a audio video offering over YouTube. And what is what's the other platform that's going to be on? Rumble. Rumble. So uh, YouTube and Rumble will have the on the battlefield shorts there soon for the off weeks, and we'll share that over social media as well. Um, we do check. Our pages, so send in your questions and comments. Let's keep it a dialogue rather than a monologue. I have uh, greatly appreciated the people who've done that. And of course, uh, you can always share directly out from Anchor FM or from any of the platforms. And uh, please, uh, if you think someone in your life would enjoy the podcast, please get it into their hands. Um, we're hoping to take this message to as many as will receive it. So thank you. Father Michael and I were saying before we started recording how much we enjoy um, positive feedback, but sometimes even uh, critical feedback or or constructive criticism is not sometimes, always very well received by the two of us. We, we both put our big boy pants on every day and try to act mature. Uh, and if you have constructive feedback, please offer it. Uh, we want this to be as good as possible, uh, to be as well done as possible to the glory of God. So today we are going to pick up um, near where we left off last time when in episode 24 we were talking about love and friendship, and we are going to um, talk today about the word philanthropos in reference to to God. If many of us have heard this word, uh, we have it in English as philanthropy, you know, uh, where, where we a love for mankind, as it were. Uh, but it, we're going to talk about that, but particularly in reference to God as philanthropos, the lover of mankind. You know, this is a, a Greek word, a composite of phil, philos, philia, and anthropos, uh, man. So uh, let's kick it off, Father Michael. Uh, this word is obviously Greek, like we said, and it refers to God as a befriender of mankind or the lover of mankind, depending on how it's translated. Uh, but that, that doesn't really necessarily mean Jesus as my buddy, like we see in a lot of American um, contexts, where we think of Jesus as our buddy that we wear sandals and drink beer with. So, yeah, so God as the philanthropos, as you mentioned, as with all good things, it is a Greek word. And, um, but it, it breaking that out to where we say it's philanthropos, right? Friend of mankind or lover of mankind. It goes well into what we were speaking about last time, because we have real impoverished, 
uh, notions for what all the constituent parts of that term mean. Uh, you know, anthropos, in that sentence, anthropos is really the easiest part to deal with because it, it just means a human being. Like, uh, I mean, you know, my wife is an anthropos and I'm an anthropos. You know, she's a woman, I'm a man, but anthropos applies to both of us. And that, that's just that word. So that's just, that's what that part means. But the philia, right, to be philos, to be the friend of mankind, to be the lover of mankind, one who loves mankind. Um, the problem is in modern America, we go two ways with this. We have a, we have a real impoverished, what I will call a buddy Christ mentality to reference Jay and Silent Bob. Uh, we, we look at Jesus as buddy Christ, where he's our pal. And pal Jesus doesn't really, no one wants him. Like, like it, it, I think if there's, if there is a Jesus that has been rejected by everyone from Gen X on, it's been buddy Jesus. Um, and, and there, there's, there's a good reason for that. I think even our, even our non-religious peers would look at your buddy Jesus and say it's inauthentic like that's that's not who he is if he exists at all that's not who he is they would say that I think they'd look and go that that sort of that trite that sappy kind of just you know sky pal hanging around giving you pats on the back he's either he's either not that's not who he is or he's useless because what do we really need him for like that, that like so that that 1960s buddy Jesus has gone the way of the dodo, thankfully, going the way of the dodo, because it's not really, it's not really Christ, um, you know, and, and so that, so there's that, or we have this anemic sense of what it means to be philanthropos. So because the word philanthropy in English just means like a handout to the less fortunate. Um, so it sets up this sort of thing where, you know, you're here and I'm there. And you're giving to me of your benevolence, but we're not really interacting. We're not really getting close. There's not really a relationship. There's a transaction where one party benefits from a better off party. Uh, but other than that, it's a sterile transaction. Whereas what the word itself points to is, remember, philia, to be a friend, to be a philos, that is a freely chosen love. That is, you are entangling yourself in someone else's life through pure volition. There's nothing compelling you to do it, but I've decided to be your friend. I've decided to love you. And as Proverbs says, there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. So I've decided to love you. And as Christ would say, to lay down my life, even for my friends. And I've called you my friends. And Jesus says in John's gospel, that's the deepest type of love. So like scripturally speaking, you're talking about God freely choosing to love humanity in this deep way, in this deep entangled way, while also being a benefactor, while also being our Lord and King. Like he's not just sitting out there distant and saying, I'm the one calling the shots. He is calling the shots. And he's also saying, hey, I also like you and would want you to come over for dinner. Like, you know, and by, and by the way, that's not buddy Jesus. That's the book of, that's the apocalypse of John, which says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Who, whoever opens to be my father and I will come in and dine with him. Now, let's not forget, let's not lose reverence and forget who we're sitting down with. However, comma, we're invited to a certain degree of intimacy 
And if, if the modern voice within us sort of kicks back and says, well, why? Because he wants to. Like there's like it's, it's really hard to wrap your mind around. It actually is because we want to have a reason spelled out. But ultimately, why God loves us is because he wants to. He, he loves us. He desires to love us. He wants to keep loving us. And he call, he, then nothing forces him to call us his sons and daughters. It's what he wants to do. I mean, that's ultimately it. And that's kind of the, the insanity. Not insanity in a bad way, but insanity in a good sense of, uh, of the divine love. Like, not, you know, not, I don't mean that in a pejorative. Because there's not a rhyme or reason to it. There's not a logical framework upon which it's conditioned. He's decided to be the friend of mankind, warts and all, knowing exactly what we're capable of, just because he does, just because he feels like it. <laughs> like, okay, um, so let's talk about that. Like, let's talk about what that means, because by having a, an anemic version of what it means to be a benefactor, and by having a, a beyond anemic, impoverished version of what it means to be a friend, calling God the friend of mankind, I think can very get quickly lost in the cultural weeds. It can quickly get mistaken. Yeah, and that, that plays out in in ancient Greek too, because the word philanthropos, the first time you start to see it get used is in a familial context. You know, the love of a mother for a child is philanthropos. So, so it starts out with, with a bond that is created by blood. And then it, it, it moves out into the secular sphere. You, you see it used in reference to King Cyrus, the Persian, when he would be conquering people, um, if, if he gave you the opportunity to surrender, he was kind to you if you, if you took, his office, uh, took his offer. And if you took his offer, he, was, he kept his word. So people used that kind of condescension of a guy who could do whatever he wanted and for him to be kind as philanthropos. So Cyrus was a befriend, befriender of men who contorted to his will. We see this in reference to uh, Christian leaders in, during the Byzantine period. Um, I think it was Emperor Justinian who saw philanthropos, philanthropia as a high virtue, as a great virtue to be held by all rulers. And he insisted on the people within his, the ruling class to be having philanthropy for their subjects. So you see that and that, and that also the ancient Greeks, uh, with regard to the Pantheon, saw that philanthropy was something that came from above and was given to those below. So there's a, in all, in every instance, there's a, a sort of uh, condescension involved with the word philanthropy, that it's something bestowed by the greater on the lesser. And, and I think you, you, you referenced this quite well, that that by having a buddy Jesus, like this happy, clappy, kumbaya Jesus, that it removes the condescension. He's just our equal. He is no less than we are. And it and removes his transcendent and, and divinity. To, 
And to reiterate what you just said, but I want to re-say it, because in modern English, to condescend is never a positive thing. But it's a it's a theological term, meaning literally to come down to, like condescend to come down with. And so the when we speak in theology about the sinkatavasia, the condescending of Christ, it's literally God coming down to man, God coming to where we are. That's literally what it is. So when we use that, we're using it in a very we're using it in a technical way, not in the way you would hear it um, out in the world as you know it, you know today. Right. To to literally come alongside of, and I prefer even to sinkatavasi. Maybe not prefer, but I like just as well uh, the the term that Saint Leo was it Saint Leo? Who was it? Uh, Kenosis. Was it Leo or or Gregory? Kenosis from the for, for the Fourth Council. Um, I, I you know what I'm not 100 percent certain. I, I don't want remember. To say Leo. I want to say it was Leo. I could be wrong. I. I'm going, with, sure. I'm going to go with Leo. Hey, uh, uh, all of our listeners home, if you know, comment over to us and let us know if that was Greg. I can't Leo. remember. I'm because, pretty sure it's Leo the Great. Yeah, Saint Leo the Great. I'm going to, I, I'm, I, that's, it's, uh, honestly, it does sound right to me for the time period, but I could, uh, I'm not But I'm anyway, not the, the word, the word stands, kenosis, the self-emptying of yes. God, you know, in the person of Christ in the carnation, incarnation. I, I like that word just as well, kenosis, uh, because it it shows it shows that God was not diminished in His divinity whatsoever when He became a human being and condescended and came down to be with us at our level, and took on flesh and dwelt among us. But there's that idea of of that condescension, that self emptying, that has to be part of Christ, the friend of man, because we can never forget that it's not just happy, clappy Jesus, but it's happy, clappy Jesus that is also hypertheos, beyond God, beyond our, beyond our human ability to comprehend his divinity. So it's both. So for me, this, the, the idea, the concept, the word philanthropos is a wonderful wonderful word and i'd like to get into this a little bit more deeply with you conversationally when when we say jesus christ the befriender of man what does that do to your understanding of humanity right for god to befriend a human being what what does it like i'll i'll ask you the question that david asked what is man that god is mindful of him what is this thing that, what is this created being, humanity, that God deigns us worthy of his friendship, of his love? Of Father Michael viewing Facebook. Hmm. <laughs> Are you calling me out for my distraction? Okay. Yes. Uh, well deserved. Well earned. Well, so like I can remember my grandmother like I, I, I remember being a teenager and, and, and my grandmother teaching me a uh, saying something to me uh, to correct me. She said, Dime con quien andas y te diré quien eres. You know, tell me who you walk with and I'll tell you who you are. And uh, later I would come to learn there's an English version of that, which is you are known by the company you keep. Um, and, and, and she was specifically referencing some people she didn't like me hanging out with. Uh, there was a context. Uh, the, but 
like, what does that mean for, for us to be the company that God keeps? Like, right. I think that's the way I'm hearing what you're asking. Like if he is known by his associations and he chooses to associate with us, then I'm honestly, I, I don't know how to parse that out. Like, because it doesn't, in my mind, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's what he's chosen to do. Now, it's worth saying that when we're looking at scripture, uh, you know, when you're looking at Job, when you're looking at Psalm uh, 81, Septuagint, 82, Western numbering, uh, and other places, there, there's this, there's this mention of the Harmuit, the, the Mount of Assembly, and 82, uh, 8182, Psalm 8182, uh, Septuagint number in Western number, um, mentions it explicitly. It says, you know, God stands in the midst of the gods, in the midst of the council of gods, he judges. And Job mentions all the sons of God coming and uh, appearing before God and having to give an account. And, you know, and elsewhere, these are the same beings that are also called the sons of God, right? When the sons of God visit, or like, you know, like one of the who looked like a son of, you know, so the, the, so what I'm getting at is there is a way in which the angelic powers um, image God and have the same close role of association with him in the sphere, sphere of the angelic world. And there's a way that we do it here. And the big difference between the two, and Orthodox theology would say the big root of the uh the rebellion on the part of one of them uh is the fact that the big difference between the two is that god chose to become one of us and not one of them and by all accounts i i mean i think we could all we would all knee-jerk say it would have it would have made more sense like the angels would have made more sense i genuinely don't know why other than to say that perhaps within the weakness of humanity, within the vulnerability of humanity, within the fact that in the fact that we have this this frailty about us, that somehow maybe the um, the contrast is is greater. Like if you've already got spiritual beings and God, who is spirit, according to scripture, becomes another one of these spiritual beings. There's too much overlap. But if you've got God showing himself, and he's showing himself in these weak and frail, fallible creatures, like the contrast of his greatness versus our weakness, and uh, is is bigger and more obvious, and the, the beauty is a little bit greater. Why? Because it's like, you know, because these two things... You wouldn't necessarily put them together, but look how they can work. Look how look at the harmony. And if that's possible, what else is possible? That this truly is the God who confounds expectations, whose ways are higher above our ways than the the earth is from the sky. You know, uh, so and and maybe that's why Saint Paul says in his epistle, in his in his, his power is made perfect in my weakness. Um, you know, so there there's something in there that apparently doesn't seem to be unthinkable for the most high, even if it doesn't make sense to us. Um, beyond that, I don't know how to make sense of it. Uh, but, you know, but yeah, I, that's now 
what do you think about that? And what do you think we should do with it? Like, okay, there's that. Do, are we? On, am I on the right track? And well, what you know? So what? Like, what do you do? I, I agree with you. I think you're on the right track. But it, this is something that I think about all the time, and I and I struggle to get to where I I think I need to be or want to be with it, um, because I see. I see a great amount of freedom offered to us in being good friends of God. What I struggle with is like that question that David has, what is man that you're mindful of him? Because I, I keep asking myself that question. It's like, we have we so diminished anthropos and our understanding of it, that understanding our, our relation to him as philanthropos is also completely neutered. Because in, in my daily travels, we, we have no concept of, of the ascension. Like in my daily circles, and it doesn't matter if it's in a secular context, an Orthodox context, or a Protestant evangelical context. It's like, what was, what was the ascension? And then how did, how did the ascension show to us what humanity was from, intended to be from the beginning? And then how do we couple those? Or from because God's perspective. Me, uh, right, that, from I, God's perspective. Well, and I want you to I want you to develop that because here's the thing. The ascension really is like the forgotten feast. Like it, 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 in fact, you could, for most people, tell the whole Jesus story, leave the ascension out, and it would make no difference. Um, per, you could Yeah, exactly. Most people don't even pay any attention to the ascension at all. And I mean, if God would ever let me serve at a church called the Analipsi, the Ascension, I'd be thrilled to death. Because the Ascension is such an important like, key to the puzzle because it, it finalizes the crucifixion. It finalizes the incarnation. The, the incarnation happens and God becomes a man, but man, it's like divinization, theosis doesn't really like have its final end until you see Christ in his humanity seated at the right hand of the father because it shows us where he intends humanity to be placed where we are created to sit with him for all eternity we we are in him we share his flesh and he shares our flesh so we see this kenosis this self this man befriending god take man into himself through his own love on the cross and to conquer death so that we could be seated with him for all eternity. And look at the freedom in that. He, he set us free from the bonds of life. He set us free from the bonds of death. He set us free from the bonds of sin in order to have what it was that he created us to be. And we don't really even see a shadow of what we are created to be until you see him seated on his throne. So there again, I ask, what are you, Father Michael, that God loves you? What is this humanity that he loves? It's a big question that we as modern Christians need to ask ourselves. Have we forgotten? Did we never know? I think, you know, I think this is one of those, I think one, this is one of those questions where we have to be a little bit apophatic, a little bit uh, apophatic in answering, because here's the thing. If we don't know how to properly appraise what humanity is, then it, would it not be wiser to also say that we can't properly appraise anything else? Like we can't really judge what God is. Like we, we want to sit and we like, I, I, I love how people who 
you know, the other 365 days of the year have nothing to do with Jesus, but they will lecture you on not being Christ-like. They can define that. Um, and, and what yeah. is apophatic for the, oh, thank those you. of yeah. us who don't know? So, thank you. Apophatic, yeah, um, is a Greek word. Uh, it is a Greek word. But uh, what it means is uh, apophatic is what's called negative theology and not negative in the sense of not positive again technical term it's where you it's where you express things in terms of what they're not so uh, so in other words saying that god is father michael is not tall right right correct i am not but uh so like for example in the liturgy in the liturgy, look how often we call God, we say things like he's uh, incomprehensible, invisible, immortal. Those are all apophatic words. You didn't say what he is. You just said what he's not, not visible, beyond comprehension, uh, not dying, not mortal. Immortal just means not mortal, not dying. Um Okay, but what is he? If you look at those words, we throw words. If, if I say, if I walk, if I said to a group of of Christian, like, you know, God is immortal and incomprehensible. You would all nod your heads. But I didn't really tell you anything. I didn't say what he was. I said a couple of things that he isn't. But that doesn't get you any closer to knowing what he is, except to say that he's beyond the concept we have for these things. Um, and, and God is love is like that. So God is our friend is like that. Like God is love, but not the way that I love my dog or my wife or my kids. He's beyond that. So at a certain point, like the word just, it comes up short and same thing, sort of, uh, same thing. Uh, same thing when you're speaking about him being our friend and benefactor at a certain juncture, the words that we're using, uh, are, are only appropriate up to a certain point. Some of them have like more purchase and, and more, more overlap with, you know, the right direction than others. So others have like a very limited purchase, but they're all ultimately uh, inappropriate, right? So that's where you have apophatic thought or this negative thought we say where we, we speak in these terms of like, well, God is immortal, invisible. We're saying what he's not in order to point to something beyond what our words can express. Um, so so I, I don't remember where was I going originally with all that before you asked me to redefine that that if we can't describe humanity oh, right. cataphatically or positively then maybe an right. apophatic approach is more right so if we can't even say like what humanity is right if we can't even say what humanity is then how are we supposed to say what God is like we we, we try to say God is this or God is that there's there's very few very few things we can actually positively say other than what he's revealed to us himself. And even then, the language that we use doesn't exhaust the reality. Um, and maybe that, maybe, and so I think if we were to accept that mystery and accept that uh, ambiguity, not amb you know, that, that sort of unknowing, if we were to accept that, we might get a little bit closer to where we're going because we'd be able to look and say, well, rather than spend time hashing out verbal boxes to fit 
this mystery that is beyond human words. Like, how, like rather than spend our time on that or, or really spend our time refighting old battles on that, how about how we go about living in that relationship in that covenant? Because what's very interesting, what's not, what we don't have super pinned down are verbal expressions that exhaust the reality of God. We know who, he, and yet I'm not speaking about theological relativism. There's one truth, there's one church, there's one Jesus Christ, there's one Holy Trinity, there's one God, capital G. What I'm saying is our human words and expressions come up short in adequately expressing that. Um, what I am also saying, is, what I am also saying is that while our words come up tragically short, notice how the bulk of Scripture exhausts itself more in telling you how to live in covenant and in relationship with that God than how to express it. Like, we have a better, we have a better fleshed out grasp of how to live in a covenant and in a relationship with the Most High than we do how to define Him or even how to define ourselves like as human beings. And and maybe, you know, maybe I, I think there's probably no shortage of theologians who would look and say that that mysterious unknowability of human beings is a, perhaps part of what makes us so uh, compatible with the Most High. The fact that we can be interacted with, we can, uh, we can have be, relationships can be had from one another. We can build deep, intimate relationships on a variety of levels, friendships and romantic relationships and families, um, and yet still remain mysteries to one another, known only through the actions that we choose to share, the energies, but the essence, the the, the deep mystery is always there. Um, 16, you know, this is year 15 of marriage, and my wife is still a mystery, Right. Uh, I mean, I realize I just cued a bevy of jokes that could come up now, but it's true. Well, you're still a mystery to one another. Um, but we participate in we participate in everyday life together. But it's a beautiful it's a beautiful and wonderful mystery, nevertheless. And the, the the most troubling aspect of it to me is that we're we're so quick to to box humanity into these black and white boxes or you know all these little check you know i am a sinner i am fallen i am worthless i you know all these i am statements which just don't cut it for me it 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 so hobbles and so diminishes the the capacity of humanity it so diminishes the reality of humanity and because if i am just that series of adjectives then then what am i really i mean why did why would the lord god bother to take his time to to offer his son on my on the behalf of this group of of created beings if if we're if that's all we are if that's all we are well i i really i really dislike like one of one of my biggest pet peeves especially in my early 20s uh when people would ask me about my ethnicity but they would say what are you i i i by my by my mid-20s i found that thoroughly offensive it's like, I, and I was some, I'm a human being. Like, what, you, what am I? No, like, where's your background from? Okay, well, I'll tell you. Fine. That's not what. These adjectives, uh, the problem is we've allowed the adjectives to become their sta standalone categories. 
uh, without any relation to one another. And that is where it's become poisonous. Up until now, up until our present epoch, uh, our present iteration of, uh, of history, you know, terms like, like uh, race and identity or whatever else were defined by religion, like what, what gods were you worshiping, and language, what language were you speaking, and whose society were you participating in. And also patrimony was in there, but it was the least important of the bunch. So you can find people, for example, uh, is one thing that uh, archaeologists are finding, and it, it stuns them, it shouldn't, but they're, they're unearthing Viking graves, for instance, and finding uh, people buried in Viking fashion uh, who are like ethnically German or, or ethnically uh, British or Celtic. Well, no, they were Vikings. Why? Well, it didn't matter what their genetic stock was. They were, they were worshiping the Viking gods, speaking the, I guess it's Norse language, whatever that language was, sorry. Um, they're speaking the language that the Vikings spoke, worshiping the gods the Vikings worshipped, living in their society and participating in its rituals. And the patrimony, at that point, the patrimony didn't matter. So when they get buried, it's like, well, who were you? Who did you ritually participate in? Well, Vikings. Okay. I, I mean, so like Cleopatra, no one questions that she was a pharaoh. She didn't have a drop of genetically Egyptian blood in her. She was genetically a Greek, but she was definitely a pharaoh of Egypt, right? Uh, and no Egyptian would have questioned that, right? So, so when we when we but all of those other categories, language, religion, ritual, society, they all have relation to a world beyond yourself. When we absolutize the adjectives. Um, we say where we say what are you, and then we have the adjectives and boxes. Um, we're isolating a human being, something that is meant to be relational in the image of the Trinity, and making it an isolated sum total of adjectives and categories with no reference to the web of relationships that this individual has. That is a, a very inhuman and dehumanizing thing to do. It's god awful. I hate it. Um, I don't speak to people like that. I don't like it either. I think it's it's dehumanizing. Um, but if we can move past the dehumanizing aspects of, of modern culture and uh, linguistic uh, choices, why is it, in your opinion, why is it so dangerous to have? I mean, we, we touched on this a little bit, but I think it deserves its a little bit further treatment. Why is it so dangerous to have a buddy Jesus, why, why is it? Why is a buddy Jesus so destructive? Well, uh, that's a good question, and I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I think, but I definitely want to hear what you think. So, do you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? I can go first. Uh, I personally, yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I know what I think, but yeah, you go. Personally, I think uh, I think a buddy Jesus. First of all, the the most destructive part of a buddy Jesus isn't that Jesus isn't our friend, or that Jesus can't be my friend at a bosom level in, in like a in a buddy sense, but that it removes him from his proper sphere immediately. He he's no longer God, but he's the Jesus that comes and hangs out with his Birkenstocks and his uh, kitschy beer. 
you know, because Jesus is my buddy. So I'm, we're just going to hang out and I'm going to, we're going to do our thing together. And he's cool with all this stuff that I do because we're always together. And, uh, he's just cool, man. He's my cool friend. And we hang out and he's, he, he's pretty down with me doing whatever the hell I want to do. And, it, and so that's destructive because it removes him from the divine sphere and it removes me from my responsibility to him in the covenant and all due respect that he is worthy of as my God. So I, for me, that would be the first place I started because it just removes him from his proper sphere as God. Well, yeah, and and I see that's the same direction I'm going. So, and then I'm I, but I'm going to actually tie it in with what you brought up about the ascension because we need to loop back to that. So, the part of the reason why Buddy Jesus, you know, part of the reason why um, Buddy Jesus is no Jesus at all, um, it, it doesn't just remove him from the proper sphere, but it removes the possibility of proper relationship. Uh, in order for, in order for him to be ultimately our God, our Savior, the one who wants the, the best, the highest good for us, which is of course eternal life, right? Which is of course to be in covenant with him, the highest good. In order for that to be there, this has to be someone who not only knows what that absolute truth, what that highest good is, but can also judge and parcel out what is not. This has to be someone who really does care whether or not you do something. Uh, because one thing that I've, I really dislike about our culture is we have this very mistaken notion that apathy equals love. That if, it, that if, if I loved you, I should be okay with whatever you do. And it's quite the opposite. If you love someone, you should care whether or not they're doing the right thing. Buddy Jesus can't care because he's just a pal. But... He's just, the reason why he can't care is that relationship's not that deep. He's not dying and rising for you. I mean, you know, you guys hang out, likes you. He's going to agree with you and make you feel good. But that's a shallow kind of friendship. A, a true friend, a, someone who is truly in your court, has to sit there and withstand you to your face. Um, you know, Father Eugene Pentuk back in uh, – back in, uh, and e even if that means, in my case – you know, getting a step stool and climbing up on the step stool and a stack of phone books to withstand you to your face. Uh, you know, I, I can see you chuckling. So I knew there was I knew there was one in the chamber. I want to beat you to it. The um, so in, in any event, Father Eugene Pentuk back at the seminary points out that the um, the Hebrew word when it speaks about uh, Adam and Eve being differentiated into male and female, where God says that he's a uh, he will make a, a helper for man. Uh, and up until that point, the word anthropos is used. The word anir for like male man isn't used until the differentiation between Adam and Eve. Up until that point in the text, anthropos has been used. And ha'adam in the Hebrew. So you get, after the differentiation, you get anir and gini, male and man and woman. And in the Hebrew, ish and isha. So both in Hebrew and Greek, there's a linguistic switch that is muddied over in English because you, you just don't have the separate words. Um, well, the word that's used for voithos, because it says voithos, helper in Greek, but the word that's used in Hebrew is a little more explicit as to what kind of help. And Father Eugene Pentiuk points out that the type of help 
that Eve is said to be. It says she, uh, God will make him a negedo. And negedo is someone who can withstand you to your face. Uh, it means a counterpart or one who can withstand you to your face. So someone who can get nose to nose to you and tell you the truth. I mean, that's why she gets nose to nose with Adam. She's supposed to be his, his, uh, his intelligence officer, his, you know, his truth teller. So, of course, she doesn't question what she brings him to eat, right? But here's the thing. That's, that's a little bit more what the, what the proper relationship uh, of Jesus to us in the intimate sense should look like. Like, we should expect him to tell us the truth. So when he finds us in sin, we expect him to say, go and sin no more. In other words, your life is spared. You have my mercy because I love you. However, comma, that is a sin and it needs to stop. Like, I'm going to tell you the truth as it stands because I, because I can ascertain what the greatest, highest objective good is, ultimate objective truth and good. And I want you there. I want you participating in that life. Buddy Jesus doesn't care enough to do that. Um, that's part of the reason. But the other reason is when you get to the ascension, that's actually, that's actually the most intimate part of the whole narrative. Um, because, you know, again, God sitting down at the end of the creation narrative, God overcomes chaos, right? You've got tohu vobohu, the world is formless and void. There's chaos and land at sea, and then God puts order. And the stars above, dry, dry water, dry, waters recede, dry land come up, stars above. You've got order and a beautiful creation made. And then it says God rested, or in other words, is a throne, right, on the seventh day. And you've got God, God conquering once again sin and chaos and evil, uh, at the crucifixion and resurrection, so much as filling death with his own life and making the tomb, uh, the, the gates of paradise and the fountain of life. Well, I mean, it could end right there, but he goes and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. So our humanity is with him eternally. Well, eternity is outside of time. So I ask you, from the perspective of the Father at the ascension, how long has Jesus's humanity been enthroned? Well, how long, long is a time question. There's no time where the Father is. So when he ascends and sits down at the right hand of the Father, um, from the Father's perspective, I mean, again, to say he left and he came back, that's all time language. That doesn't exist in eternity. So our theology is really clear. Like he never left his divine throne, and yet he condescended and took flesh of, of the ever virgin well if that's true then also our humanity the humanity that he took in some way has always timelessly been there with the father so what that means is like for him to be our friend is for him to say you know we've called you to this highest of vocations to have your life as intimately united with the one who causes life itself and is life itself um and we want to give you the road where that's possible, um, which is why to which is why to sin is to be not human. To lead down a path of sin is to be not human, and in a way, to blaspheme because this is what God has joined his in. You know, this is what God has joined himself to. So, like even my own sins, like when I'm when I'm short tempered with my wife and kids, like. 
how much blasphemy is in there simply because they're the image and likeness of God? Uh, and we're going to get off this recording and I'm going to do a poor job managing that. I mean, and that's where a life of repentance in, in this envelope of time becomes so merciful. Because if I, you know, if, if we, if, if, if Jesus would just snapshot everything, I'm in trouble. And if we have buddy Jesus, he doesn't care enough to, to, you know, he doesn't care enough to pull us out of it. I, I'll stop. But buddy Jesus is kind of like the cool parents from when we were growing up back in the eighties, nineties, you know, everyone wanted, everyone, everyone thought the cool parents were great because, you know, you can, they, they'll turn a blind eye to drinking at their house but nobody, but kids who have the cool parents don't want them because they don't parent. They, they, they fail to be mom and dad. Their respect fails to be there when you need them to be the responsible, mature adults who can pull you out of your adolescent hell. They're not there because they're adolescents themselves. Um, you know, the, the cool grandpa who tries to, you know, sag his pants and and talk like the kids, you know, who tries to imitate the, the, the hip modes the hepcat modes of speech of the the youngins today he looks ridiculous but what the what what's respected is like when you got a venerable old man who is indeed a venerable man and he's got gravitas about him like even it, what's interesting is the more solid and unmovable he is the more like even the most unruly kids like they'll listen like i i when i've dealt with youth as a priest like with the more Sergeant Mark Antonius thrown in there to Father Michael, the more like the less ruly kids respond well. Like they listen, like, oh yes, okay, there's there's gravitas, there's seriousness here. Okay, yeah, we're listening. Um and so the church would do well, right? To not try to speak, to to be the venerable, the venerable, timeless elder, like, no, this is this is who we are, this is how we're speaking. Um, we're not here to be your buddy and Jesus isn't here to be your buddy. And that's good news because you don't need a buddy. You, you need, you, you need dependability, the solid elder ancient of days that can pull you out of hell. If you'll just quit jerking your hand back, man. At some point we have to be able to give, give some sort of like self-direction for myself. I'm, I'm sitting here wondering, like, what does that mean for my day-to-day then? So if, if Jesus, buddy Jesus is no bueno, and I don't want or need a buddy Jesus, then what do I need to do with the actual Jesus, right? So, but what do we see from this Jesus, the actual philanthropos Jesus? We, we see that, we, we see in him the will of God, we, we see that God the Father adores his creation and that he wants the absolute best for us and that he's willing to do whatever it takes to have us for his own. That, and that the way in which buddy, that Jesus Christ, my friend, actually would have me live is a life of humility, a life of love for other people, and a, and a life of self-offering. And that... And that for me to have genuine freedom and to absolutely enjoy the friendship of God, that that sort of self-offering covenantal love for other people is the way uh, 
of life, that that, that that is actual friendship, that that is actual love. Me choosing to offer myself on behalf of Father Michael, not for my benefit, but for the benefit of Father Michael unto the glory of God. So, yeah, that totally disallows Buddy Jesus because Buddy Jesus and I, we're just cool and we can do whatever we want. And, and while we're out hanging together, we can talk smack about people and we can say all sorts of stupid, terrible things. And Jesus is going to be cool with it because he's my friend. He's a nice guy. He, 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 he cares about me. But at the end of the day, he hangs out with God on weekends and I'm just stuck here. In, in the sin and the mire of my own life, right? So, I mean, he goes back to the Hamptons and I got to hang, hang out in Queens, right? I mean, it, it's, not, it's not even the same, but that's not really Jesus. The real Jesus has played it, it's already played out in eternity. So Jesus's humanity is like the lamb sacrificed before the foundation of the world. And that we share in that eternal thing and that eternal thing is bound in a friendship which he freely offers to us, a free will offering of relationship. And how are you going to live that relationship? I, I beg the question of yourself, myself, and everyone listening. What does that relationship need to look like in your day to day? Well, and that's, the, but that, see, that, that's where the humility comes in because, again, if we can't even define what we are and we can't even define what God is, then we're certainly not in a position to set the parameters for how to go about living that relationship. Like we just don't have the computing power. That's why scripture and the fathers expend more of their time on how do you, <clears throat> how to live in proper covenant and relationship to God as opposed to finding. Well, thankfully Christ throughout the entirety of scripture has set the parameters. He said, here's the path. Here's the path of repentance. That path, has been preserved continuously and, and in continuity within the Orthodox Church. We are this didn't come about with the apostles in a vacuum. This is the continuous continuation of the patriarchs and the prophets and the temple and the apostles and all the way back from the beginning of time. This doesn't just start. It it has continuity. You know, Jesus and the apostles didn't just come into a vacuum out of nowhere. They they, they were the culmination of this whole movement in salvation history from the patriarchs through the incarnation that then really flowers into the ecclesia, the church, the assembly of God, and then, and then we'll go into eternity. We don't get to set the parameters of what that is. We don't get to set the parameters of how that relationship is done. We don't have the wherewithal, but we do have the wherewithal to live it out. We do have the wherewithal to follow it. And thankfully, Christ has put those parameters there. He's put the framework there. No, this is not Vietnam. There are rules. And what we have to, if, if he is our friend, if he is the one who loves us beyond what we love ourselves, then we have to ultimately look and say, even when these parameters don't make sense, I trust the one who gave them and they are ultimately for a higher good than I imagined. Um, as a parent, I know that I've seen even, in the, you know, which again, it's a pale shadow of the fatherhood of God, right? So in my own fatherhood, I've seen my children ask for a great many things that seem good to them. And I say, and, and they meet a no or a not right now for me. And they don't 
get it. Even when I try to explain, sometimes they still don't get it. But it's I know what they don't know. And, and I can see beyond what they can see. And I know why, while what you're asking for may not be objectively bad, I want something more good for you. And so, no, or not right now. Um, so, I mean, if I'm seeing a pale reflection of that with my kids, well, I mean, how much more so God the Father to us, his sons. And we, we shake our fists at the sky and say, why not? And he's like, I'm trying to explain it to you, but you are not getting it, kid. However, if you will, however, if you will but follow the covenant, you're going to like where this ends up. And kind of like how when you and I finally grew into manhood, you know, we looked at our own fathers and we kind of said about a great deal of things. Okay, I get it now. Like, I sort of get it now. Okay, I get what you were going for. And oh, man, yeah, you, you, you had... You, you knew what you, you did know what you're talking about, despite what my teenage brain thought. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, yes, that we 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 need to stop looking at those things like these are these are municipal laws versus this is the way to live out this relationship, given by the only partner in this relationship who has the wherewithal to make those. Uh, to make those judgments. We don't have the wherewithal to do it. And if he didn't love us, he wouldn't bother. If he just wanted a workforce, um, there's no reason to bother. Like you could do buddy Jesus with a workforce. But if you want sons, you give them correction. And, and Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Yeah. And if we keep his commandments, like you said, it's not, it's not a legalistic thing. It's if you do these things, you, you are going to become like me. That, and, and you're going to, in, in a very real sense, you are going to incarnate the incarnate Lord. You're going to, by keeping his commandments, you're actually going to learn how to love really. You're going to truly learn how to have joy. You're going to truly learn how to participate in him and truly have the freedom to become the sons of God, to be reflective lights on a hill like we say of the Holy Fathers of the Ecumenical Councils. So if we love him, we, we abide by that, that covenantal relationship and we grow in it. So it's like we, we want a buddy Jesus because we see in buddy Jesus freedom. But freedom doesn't come from buddy Jesus. Freedom comes from loving God and keeping those commandments so we can truly become reflective of the divine light in the world and truly become more and more like him. My opinion. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, ultimately we also know that, um, life hits the fan. Man. I mean, look, there, there, there's the rebellion in the unseen world. There's rebellion here on earth. There's the incursion of the sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim and the tower of Babel and giants and all of this other stuff. Um, life, you know, doesn't go smoothly. I mean, even Job mentions, it says, uh, you know, in the book of Job, it says the heavens are not pure in your sight. And we speak of several, not just one, several, uh, angelic falls in the old Testament. Um, you know, so you're, you're, or, and the new, actually, if you're counting both old and new, there's, there's more than several. So, um, so when you're looking at it, when you're looking at it, honestly, 
if life is going to not go smoothly, you definitely don't need a buddy Jesus. You need someone dependable. You need, you need a God who is intimate yet sovereign. You need someone who does want to come and be one of us, but you know that when, you know, when rubber meets the road, you can count on him. He's there. He's, you know, death itself can't contain him. Oh, or like uh, the prophet Saint Elijah would say, "He who is with us is greater than those who are against us." Um, you know, and that's that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the God we serve. So it's you have the intimacy, and and when you value that, when you value Him for who He's revealed Himself to be, it, you you wouldn't want to downgrade to just a pal. Um, but again, it's. It's in the it's in the following. It's in the doing. It's in the the relating. Um, you know, I was uh, we're in the Bible study with uh, with my with my parish with my community. You know, we we're, were reading through Wisdom of Sirach yesterday. And one thing that's consistent in the wisdom literature, in the prophets, in the Psalms, and in the Gospels, is that God is constantly harping on uh, people being of double mind, being hypocrites, being um, being uh, sort of you know double speak and double mind and, and like here's this one line here it says woe to cowardly hearts and weakened hands and to a sinner who walks on two paths you know that's from Sirach right so there's this idea let your yes be yes and your no be no I wish you were hot or cold but you're lukewarm so I'll spew you from my mouth like this is a constant theme so what we're saying is right. Like we, we it, it's not it half-heartedly endeavoring to image God is not pleasing to God. Wholehearted repentance alongside very imperfect imaging, but with wholehearted repentance is perfectly acceptable to God. He's asking for fidelity not perfection. And that fidelity is constantly, he constantly allows it to be recalibrated through repentance. And that's a friend. That's someone you want in your corner. So we need to have this idea of Jesus because I think, I think that the idea of buddy Jesus came from a good place in a way, because if we, if we have a, a sinful and fallen people who are completely incapable of pleasing God or doing anything that God is happy with, and how in the world do I come to a place where I have also at the same time a God who's on my side? You know, so if, if Jesus so you think, can't... you think it was like an overcorrection? An overcorrection, yeah. Yeah, but we, ha- but we as human beings, we want that. You see that our society right now is so complicit in wanting to have black and white stuff. And I think that we want these black and white uh, cataphatic categories for life because life is so complex and the more that we put computers and technology and information in front of us at the speed of light literally the 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 more complicated and the more difficult life becomes to navigate and the more important it becomes to us to be able to have these categories i need to be able to categorize these things because life is too hard it's too fast. It's too complex. So the more I can take the complexity out and, and just have these, these simple notions, my, my psychological well-being increases, but it, my, 
but that also then diminishes my real capacity to to live a full and actual truthful life so i mean i have to do this every day we have to like detox from the computers and all it's it's hard man it's it's a hard life it's a dynamic complicated and complex life and we are always falling victim to going with the pendulum swinging both ways and we need to be firm we need to be grounded and we need to be courageous you said that word earlier we need to be courageous enough to stay on the path to to stand where the father's put us to stand where the apostles guided us and to stand in the truth and the foundation of jesus christ in this life and that's not easy it ain't easy it's hard. It sucks. It sucks sometimes. Sometimes buddy Man. Jesus is a lot easier to cope with. Cause he's well, cool with it. it. Yeah. Until like, until you, well, yeah. Until you actually got to get anything done. And I think, honestly, I think, I, I, I think. So what you see is when you see people who, who have been raised with, um, a complete absence of discipline, like the buddy parents, you know, um, you, you get one of two things for the most part. Either you get thoroughly dis, you get thoroughly undisciplined individuals who are just completely mired in whatever their impulses and desires are. Like you know, if you want to, you know, eat what you eat, 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 drink, do whatever, whatever you feel like doing, do what you will. Like you get that, you get the hedonist, or you also get the very hyper rigid, very black and white. Uh, because there's that overcorrection of like, I so need structure and dependability that I'm going to hyper systematize and hyper categorize and overcorrect. And then they're, they're like absolutely fearful of any ambiguity. Um, and, uh, obviously both of those extremes are, are, are wrong, right? Both of those extremes are, are unbalanced. And I think because theologically we started to look at the, once we once we downgraded Christ to Buddy Jesus um, as a culture, there crept in very slowly, not all at once, but there crept in the very real sense that he was toothless and kind of um, unreliable. Like you can't count on him for the big hard stuff uh, because he's just your pal. He's here to make you feel good. Um, you know, I hate to I hate to say it, but like, so like South Park. Like if you if you look at uh, the the very you know the early seasons of South Park where they very often had uh, Jesus and the devil depicted right, and there was even a boxing match between them once in South Park, um, and Jesus is depicted as kind of skinny. He's a nice dude. He's skinny. He's non-imposing, average height, uh, just you know nothing, nothing real spectacular. And certainly doesn't really do or confront anything, and he doesn't accomplish much. But the devil, they depict him as this big, hulking, monstrous giant with huge muscles. Like, the devil certainly looks a lot more reliable and dependable in South Park. Well, well look at that. So we've, we, we've created Buddy Jesus, and Buddy Jesus has to be anemic. I mean, he can hang out with the kids all day, but he can't get squat done. I, I mean, and, and that's... Once and so you've got the overcorrection. So once we've once we've said that the transcendent is just a an unreliable pal, then how do you create order in the chaos of life? Well, you've got to get super. 
you either have anarchy or you get super hyper rigid about more and more ever increasing categories to box everyone in. If anyone steps out of their box, they're canceled. Like, I mean, it's, but you have to get hyper rigid because you have to create the system and you know that your mind can't work out all the infinite cosmic, uh, you know, eventualities. And so your system is flawed, but if you, but you can't admit that it's flawed, fatally flawed, because then chaos is back and you're terrified of that because you had a buddy Jesus. I mean, what, what's really interesting is when you've, the, 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 the cultures that have, uh, the cultures that have had a, uh, a strong, traditional, uh, dependable, sovereign, transcendent Christ, the true Christ at their, at their core, also had to deal with a lot more ambiguity than we do today. There were rampant diseases and plagues. It was very common for people to bury four or five children, right? Like it's only within the last hundred years that not burying a couple of your kids has become common. For the most for most of history, you'd have a bunch of kids and you were probably going to and, – and some percentage of them was not going to reach adulthood. And that was common, all right? People were going to die from chickenpox. I mean that was common. Uh, there was going to be famine. There's something we have no conception of in modern America. There was definitely going to be famine. Uh, there is going to be droughts. There's going to be inv- invading, marauding hordes uh, and, and, and raiders coming through your villages. Like storms are going to wipe out. They're not just going to knock the Internet out for a couple of hours. They're going to wipe out your town. That was life for most of history. But because people related to, you know, an imminent, transcendent, intimate, and yet sovereign and dependable, strong God, the God of hosts, the God of armies at the center. Of, by the way, Lord Savalov means hosts, and host is just an, a cleaned up English word for armies. So when you call him Kirio Savalov, Lord of Savalov, it's Lord of armies is a military title. And this was... That people are looking at this God and saying, "Yeah, there, there's no, no one had any problem navigating all that chaos and all that evil, because at the center of it wasn't Buddy Jesus. It was an enthroned incarnate Christ who pulled them through out of slavery in Egypt and out of Babylon and through endless wars and persecutions and a famine last year. So we're going to make it through this one too." And if we live, we live, and that's good. And if we die, then we rest in him, and that is gain. I mean, so you're talking about a, a whole different worldview, but it really hinges – like not having buddy Jesus is a really is a really key element to being able to uh, face life. You know, kind of like Lebowski's rug, it really ties the room together. <laughs> I think that is a great place to end for today. That that Lebowski's rug and the image of of Christ, the standard bearer on the horse, leading the charge with his friends against evil and death in the world. Glory be to Jesus Christ, Father. Thank you again for 
doing this with me. I hope that everybody out there in podcast land enjoys these. Please reach out to us and let us know what you think via Facebook. Uh, we're available at anchor.fm on the battlefield, uh, available on Facebook and Instagram at on the battlefield podcast. Uh, please again, just leave your comments, uh, both critical and positive. Uh, we'll appreciate both and grateful for both. And uh, we look forward to meeting you here again on the battlefield. Mm-hmm.